everyone. I'm really excited to welcome back a familiar face, uh, to me at least, um, and to have Natalie Christina back on the podcast. And Natalie was our first ever guest all the way back in uh, episode two. And this is going to be episode 30 something, I think, when, when it comes out. And a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned Natalie because I did one of Natalie's workshops on relationships. And actually, Natalie doesn't know this yet, but uh, we've just revamped our website and I've put a kind of recommend page. And obviously, we've got our own speciality here, but we're not experts in everything. And Natalie's thing is relationships. So she is our recommended person. If you have any relationship stuff that you're working through, there's a link to Natalie there so you can find her. So I haven't told you that before, but welcome, Natalie. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you. That is, oh my goodness. That, <laughs> you said you weren't going to make me cry. <laughs> Sorry. Starting already. No, that is so sweet of you. I'm really excited to be back. And it's pretty cool even just thinking that episode two to episode 30 and, and how much you and I have connected through that time from just having met online. And I really appreciate you holding space for us to talk today more specifically about my journey, which I'll let you do more of an introduction to, um, because it's not always that I get a chance to do that because I specialize in talking about relationships. So I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the other nuances that have brought me to where I am as a relationship coach, but also have just been integral in my development on my own independent journey as well. Yeah. And I mean, obviously the relationships, I'm sure there was way more that we could talk about around that as well. But yes, Natalie is back for a I guess a bonus episode. So we a few months ago, we did a special episode for bipolar awareness, we did one for time to talk day. So kind of, I guess, shining a light on specific experiences that might have an impact on mental well being. So we're back for another one of these. And we're going to be talking about MS today. So for anyone who's listening, who maybe is like, what is that? <laughs> maybe they've heard the term, they're not really sure what it is. I wonder if before we dive into your journey and your experience, if you could just tell us a little bit about what MS is. Yes. So I will do my job as a non-doctor sharing (laughs) my understanding of what MS is. So MS is, or multiple sclerosis, um, is an autoimmune condition. And more generally speaking, autoimmune are conditions where your body attacks itself. And so in the case of MS, my body attacks the, I hope I pronounce this right, the glial cells, which make up the myelin sheath on the nerves, um, which carry neural impulses. And so it's a neurodegenerative disease. Um, With that, I will share like, I specifically have RRMS, which is relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis. And there are also way more types of MS than I even am actually aware of, which I think probably will bring us to other parts of this conversation that'll come up. But I think it's um, it's been really important for me with MS to recognize. And I think for anyone else ever talking with someone who might have MS to realize that there are so many different types. And so people are with the same, in air quotes, same illness are living very different types of experiences. And then even within each type of that, it can present in very different explicit ways or silent ways. And so that's always something um, that I try to be aware of. And so I want to also preface with, you know, I'm sharing strictly from my experience. And I recognize that in a lot of ways, I've been very fortunate along my journey so far. Um, And there are so many different experiences, different symptoms that people with MS Um, have. And it's just something to keep in mind, I think, because it's, 
it's easy to kind of pigeonhole into what our comprehension might be. Um, and even for myself, right? But there's so much outside of that. And then I'm always learning from other people who have walked this journey as well. I think that's true for, I guess, any condition or, or illness that you have. I recorded an interview talking about depression the other day. And actually, I was asked the same question, but for depression. And for that, again, there are different types of different presentations. So I think Obviously, yes, we're talking about your experience and there may be some parallels for other people. But I think that is a really important thing to remember that it's not just 100% going to be the same experience. It's going to be different for everyone. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so I wonder if you could tell us about your, your journey, how you got to this point in your life, I guess, with, um, with your MS journey. <laughs> <laughs> with your MS journey. I mean, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, I call it that all the time. That's like my favorite hashtag. So, uh, so, oh man, uh, it was back in 2013, if I remember correctly, is when it started. So we're in 2020 now, uh, in the spring. And I remember I was working at Starbucks in downtown Toronto and I had this weird thing happen. And for anyone who has seen me, I have giant holes in my earlobes. Um, So the strange thing that was happening and the way I describe it is I almost had like (laughs) phantom earlobe pain. Like it felt like there was an itch in my earlobe where I don't have one anymore that I couldn't scratch. And it was the strangest phenomenon I've ever experienced. And then slowly it started to move kind of into my actual ear along my jaw and my cheek and gradually over... I think three to four weeks, it spread down to my right collarbone and began to go down my shoulder. And what it was, was almost like topical numbness. And I would feel the itch under the surface, but I couldn't scratch it no matter what I did. And like, I remember scratching on my jaw, like specifically along my jawbone, because it was so itchy and uncomfortable, but I would scratch so hard, feel nothing on the surface, but it would get to the point that I felt like intense pain in my bone from how hard I was pushing. And I remember being in the shower and feeling the water on my face, but I could only feel it on half of my face, not the other side. And, you know, I was 19, 20 years old, I think. So I, and even though I'd already been diagnosed with another health condition, um, cause autoimmune like to come in pairs or more, um, I still was like, oh, it's fine. Like it's it's getting better. It'll go away. And I actually had a customer. I remember her and I had a really special bond. And she kind of questioned me and she was like, well, you know, it could be something like a mini stroke. You really should go to the doctor. And I think, um, honestly, for me, I was pretty terrified to go to the doctor because the last time I'd gone to the doctor for something I didn't think was that serious I'd ended up in the hospital for three days and my life changed forever. And that was my um, type one diabetes diagnosis. And so the thought of going through that again, I was naturally, I think, quite resistant to. But she said that and I sat with it and I realized, you know, I do, I need to go get this checked out. So I booked an appointment um, with, it was my campus doctor at the time and because uh, I was at university I, yeah, I booked an appointment with my campus doctor and I went to see her and I always describe her as being like, I swear she was an angel in my life because she was the same doctor who diagnosed me with diabetes. And it was like, I went to see her. 
She figured it out within 30 seconds. She paid for my cab to the hospital, which was two blocks away because she said it was not safe for me to walk alone. And I was a poor and somewhat irresponsible student who did not have money for a cab. And she made that happen. She called me on the weekend to make sure I was okay. And so this day, when I went to her with this sensation, her initial thought was Lyme disease, uh, which I, I guess can present with some similar types of symptoms to what I was experiencing. So she ordered a blood panel, but she actually got me in to see a neurologist down the street from the clinic that day. So I left her, I went and I walked down the street, like maybe five blocks and got in with a neurologist. And this is where, like I said, in the beginning of our our talk, I was so fortunate because a lot of people I talk to, and especially depending where you're located and what the medical system is like, that is unheard of. Like that just does not happen. Um, and so I'm very grateful that I think she'd been a doctor in the community for quite some time and she had some good ties to other professionals because, you know, it really did expedite my journey that way. And so I went and he ordered more blood work and also an MRI. Um, and so that kind of got the ball moving and, I went for the MRI. I can't remember the timeline, honestly. I think there were so many shifts in my life in that year and a half. Like diabetes, got sober, MS, all within 12 months. And so it's really foggy. And I think also because it it was pretty emotionally taxing without me necessarily realizing it as I was just going through the motions. Um, But I do remember it being fairly quick because I got the MRI, went back And then I got called back to see that neurologist, um, which generally is not a good sign when you get called back for your test results. Um, And it uh, it was on a Thursday um, in September that same year. And I went back and he kind of sat me down and the room got silent. And I just, yeah, it's like, it's, it feels surreal, like thinking back to that moment, you know, there was this weird disconnect, but it was like all the energy in the room just centered onto him, just like, you know, and it kind of closed in around me. And I remember him saying very nondescript, which was great at the time, sarcasm right there. Um, (laughs) You have multiple abnormalities along your spine and brain and like my first reaction was like, do I have tumors all up and down my spine? Like, what are you talking about? Cause I think he was coming at it, having an inkling of what this could be. I had been given no information because they're really not supposed to give you much information until the end of the results. And my symptoms were not um, as clear cut as maybe some people's would be. Right. And, and so I didn't know anything. And so he says, this was like, okay, but what are you talking about? And um, so he, and that's when he said, you know, I, I am not someone who can tell you because he wasn't an MS specialist. Like he didn't specialize as a neurologist. Um, but he said, it looks like it could be MS and I'll be sending you to a specialist and I'll send you a referral. And it, I know we had, we had chatted a bit before this about kind of like the emotional mental journey, but I honestly don't think that that, I don't know if that moment will ever fully catch up as I'm talking it through to you right now, because I think I just went into kind of that survival mode. Um, And what I do remember is when I left, um, I felt numb and overwhelmed all at the same time. And I called my, I think my partner at the time, because he had known what was going on. 
to let him know that this was the next step. This is what's happening. And then I called my stepdad to let him know. And he told my mom and, uh, I had, see all my sensory memory is like blur, but I know from him telling me at least that she collapsed to the floor screaming. Cause you know, it's my mom. Like she was devastated and, and so scared for me and living in a different province. It's like, she couldn't come hug me. She couldn't be there. Right. And, and that's heartbreaking. I think for any parent, um, and then I remember the next thing I did, and this was the big turning point, was I reached out to someone I met up with earlier that day who ended up being kind of my first mentor along my sober journey. And I confirmed that she'd be at this um, event I was planning to go to that night because I knew I needed to reach out for help um, because I didn't want that part of my growth to I don't want to say backtrack, but I knew I didn't want to go into how I used to cope with this diagnosis. Because with diabetes, I threw myself into drinking and anything else I could do to just escape having to process these things and escape in, you know, accepting what my reality was becoming going forward. And I didn't want to have to go through that again. And so I reached out um, for help. And I think that was a huge shift. And and to be able to move, we'll talk more mindset later, but to be able to create the shifts in mindset around the diagnosis that I gradually have over time since then. Um, yeah. And so I guess leading up to diagnosis, I'm a weird one. My diagnosis was very gradual. And I think because, I don't know, I can't say for certain. I think because my symptom, like that initial, they call it a clinically isolated syndrome when you have your first like episode and they normally last four to six weeks. So it's not generally that you'll have this thing show up and it lasts for years and years. They actually look for the four to six week window a lot of the time. I'll also say that the diagnostic criteria in different countries varies. So here it's displacement over space and time. So you need to have multiple physical markers on an MRI. It doesn't necessarily have to be blood work. I think in the States you need blood work. I'm up in Canada just for reference. Um, and over time, meaning I had this one clinically isolated syndrome, and then will there be a next one? So when I went to the um, MS specializing neurologist, I don't know what the word is for that. Anyway, that guy, um, he basically said that because I already had another autoimmune condition, given the things that they had seen in my physical symptoms, my MRI, my likelihood of this being MS increased from 15% to about 85%. So I think that was his really gentle way of telling me you have MS uh, because <laughs> a year later, I moved to Vancouver. I'd had another MRI since then because I think they monitored me a bit more frequently than they now do just to see how things went. And after that MRI, I had a bout of vertigo that lasted about five weeks um, and when I went to see this new neurologist, I kind of asked her, I was like, so do I have MS? And she's like, what do you mean? Do you have MS? Like, yeah, you do. And I was like, well, I think he was just being nice because he told me this. And she's like, no, you do. However, in most people's circumstances, that vertigo might not count as a second occurrence, but because of me being also diabetic, she wanted to get me on a medication now that it had been a year and I kind of adjusted. And I think because they weren't as 
concerned in a sense. They didn't push me onto a medication right away. Um, but she said that now that that had happened, that was going to count as my next one. And so within about a month of that, I started my uh, medication, which is Copaxone. Do you think that having that, I guess, more gradual diagnosis of a, well, it's maybe an 85% chance, maybe gave you a chance to come to terms with it a bit more gradually rather than someone just saying, yeah, this is this is what it is. I think it did in a sense. It's it's kind of ebbed and flow both ways. Like I think, yeah, I'm kind of grateful that I was given that space so I could gradually, you know, hold on to the tools and do some research and feel into it. At the same time, I think that that 15% I was kind of holding on to was like, well, maybe it's not, right? Like maybe. And actually my... (laughs) my poor mother, because I had told her that 85%. And I think it was like a year and a half ago now. And it's been like six or seven years that she was like, wait, so you do have it? (laughs) Yes, mom. Yes, I have it. (laughs) I've been on medication for six years now. I have it. Um, And so similar for her, like that 15% became 100, you know. Um, And so it's definitely gone both ways. But I think that Mm-hmm. even just with the physical symptoms that I've experienced is it's similar. It's, it's given a bit of both, but definitely having that space. I think when I was already in a very um, emotionally, I don't want to say unstable, but just uh, not as secure in my foundational supports as I am now. Right. It, it gave me time to really solidify in those so that I could move forward with that diagnosis more safely, really. Because uh, like I said, you know, for me, like sobriety was definitely at the forefront of my thought. And I I think it, it helped so that I didn't jeopardize that, which has been really important moving forward. Yeah. And I think you said that you, you reached out to a friend who had been that mentor with your sobriety to, to sort of say that you would need help kind of going forward. And I, and I think that's such a I imagine must have been quite difficult to have that conversation, but I guess such a powerful thing to have made that connection early on and, and put it in place so that when you get to a point where you're like, I really need help now, you've had that difficult conversation about what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and she ended up being kind of the first person I told any of this to. And I like, as you're asking me, I I remember standing in the entrance to the subway at Young and Eglinton in Toronto, having this conversation with her and just crying. And I, you know, it's at least for me, a lot of times when I first say something out loud, like I remember the first time moving on my sober path, when I acknowledged that, like, I had a problematic relationship with alcohol. um, I just cried. I'm a crier. It's just a thing that happens. But for me, that's kind of part of that acceptance and showing up for it. And, and, you know, she, held space for that. And and that was really needed and still really difficult. Mm. I think there's something powerful, isn't there, about putting stuff into words that maybe has been kind of swirling around in your head, but when it's put into words, it feels more real or more concrete. So I guess then, yeah, the emotions come with it because suddenly mm-hmm. it's just it's just there. <laughs> it's just out in the room yep. to come to terms with. No, absolutely. Yeah. So now you have your official diagnosis and you have medication that and we can come back to medication because I know that there's maybe some some more to say about that and how that journey uh, is going 
But there was something that you said, so uh, like you said, you've been posting about your um, MS journey, and there was something that you said um, about it being an invisible illness, and that people who don't have it, don't get it. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that and about maybe some of the misconceptions that people have, or if there are things that people have said to you that you really are just like, you don't understand this at all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I think, one, it's it's misunderstood in general. Like I think you really can't understand living with an illness fully until you've had it. And it's just like any, you know, subjective experience. Um, and I think indivisible, indivisible, <laughs> invisible illnesses, oh my goodness, um, whether it be, you know, neurodiversity or in my case, um, neurodegeneration. <laughs> um, it, it, yeah, it's tricky that way because I can't articulate to someone and there's that spoon theory, you, you know, but like what, what fatigue is like, it's not just tired and you know, I've, I've shared with my partner a couple times, cause there's definitely been moments where he's kind of like, okay, but you know, and cause full disclosure, if I am feeling super fatigued, can I talk about this on here? I don't have much of a sex drive, no sex drive. It's just not a thing. Um, honestly, it's exhausting to even have to lift my arm up to get out of bed. Like that's how it feels. And I'm sure people, can relate to that from many different backgrounds in terms Mm -hmm. of fatigue, depressive state, whatever it might be. Um, But until you've known that level for yourself, like it's not, it's not something easily articulated because it's not like I can, I can show it to you. Right. And, and I've, I've definitely had conversations with people before where I was having things like this happen. And, and I had, one time like cramping in my legs and it was really, really bad. And my neurologist said that it didn't sound neurological. So it it wasn't linked to MS. That being said, all autoimmune is kind of antagonized by inflammation. And so it might not be directly causal, but it could be correlated in, in some way. And I was fine to stand still. I could stand and move on the spot. But at the time I was living up this huge hill. And if I would try to walk up that hill, I would be so exhausted. Like I just could not do it. And I remember them questioning me being like, what are you talking about? Of course you can. And it's like, I can't, I can't explain this to you. Like, and it, one, it's not my job to have to explain that to someone. Like if I tell you, I can't walk up the freaking hill let me be like, I know my limits. Mm. Right. Um, and for me, that's also been a big shift because I'm someone who used to push myself all the time. Hence that I did not want to go to the doctor for any of these things. Um, you know, and, and I've had to learn to check in with that. And that's been really difficult mentally to adjust to my new normal in that sense. Um, but I think it is, it's just like me realizing, like, I don't need to explain this to people, but also, it's been hard at times to accept that they might not get it. And and I think if something is visually in someone's face, you know, they might not be able to fully comprehend your experience, but it might be easier for them to be like, Oh, okay. I get what you're saying. Like I'll leave that alone. But if it's something they can't, they also can't even see or observe for themselves and they don't understand the subjective experience. Um, it can be really difficult. I think to, create that space for that understanding, understanding in just understanding what the other person needs and kind of backing off, not understanding like they're going to know. Cause like I said, like that just can't happen. I don't want to like, you know, I'm a broken record at this point, but 
Yeah. So I, I think it's, it's kind of been <laughs> how to navigate that for myself. Right. And also acknowledge for myself. Cause like it's invisible to me too. So for me to actually sit there and be like, Oh wait, I'm not just tired. Like this is more than that. I have to stop. Right. And then to have to explain it to another person. Well, Lord, that's even more exhausting. And at that point I just want to stay in bed all day. <laughs> mm. Did you find that you had to deal with some resistance on your own part? Like you said, if you were someone who was always very active and, and pushing yourself, actually acknowledging, actually, no, you know, I am struggling with this. I need to look after myself a bit more. I need to rein it in. Did you find that a difficult thing for yourself to um, accept? Yes, definitely. And it took time for me to know the difference between fatigue and just tired and I think it's also been um, learning learning what causes fatigue. Like some people I hear about with MS, and this is where, like I said, it's a very individual journey. There's people with MS who are out there running marathons and that works for them. For me, I noticed at a certain point that I was more likely to get fatigued from going on like a pretty low key hike than I was from weight training five days a week. And that just has to do with probably inflammation in my body and how my body responds to that kind of activity. And so I had to make some adjustments because I used to be a very like cardio heavy person. Then I got into weight training, like, um, well, I shouldn't say weight training, like powerlifting and, and just more that sort of activity, some hit workouts, that sort of thing. Um, and now I am at a place where for my day job, um, except for right now, because I'm in quarantine. But usually when I'm at the office, I have a 45 minute walk home. And for me, like I said, the walking is a lot on my body. And I've had to definitely adjust my workout regime based on that. And it's been difficult to acknowledge. And I think as I started this, this job a year, a bit over a year and a half ago, um, it's nine hour days, it's not, you know, eight to eight and a half hour days. So that was already a lot 45 minute walk home. So there's different compounding factors. And I had been going still to the gym five days a week for up to two hours because that's what my training looked like. And now I'm doing, you know, even with being quarantined, I'm not going out for walks and I may be doing 20 minutes of yoga a day. And I've had to make peace with that. And my body is different and my capabilities are different, but like, that's okay. But it's been hard and it's been hard to let go of what my normal was and to get to a point where I can realize, you know, that that ebb and flow is all right. And it's more important to meet myself where I'm at, and then figuring out what that looks like for me. I think that's such an important idea of meeting yourself where you're at. I think for obviously someone who has a, a chronic condition, but just generally, I think we also sometimes don't meet ourselves where we are. Um, we just kind of want to be, I don't know where we were like five years ago, or where we want to be in another five years, we struggle sometimes just to accept this is where I'm at this is what I can I can do I wanted to ask so you're saying that you started this new role with with long days are you quite open about your MS at work and are they supportive do they try and accommodate if you need it um a couple people know about it but otherwise I haven't said anything um personally. And also I work in insurance. So <laughs> there's, uh, you know, there's that level that I kind of want to keep it discreet. Um, but some people from the office follow me on social media, which is where I am very open. So they will know, but I also kind of trust that if someone is following me on social media, they're keeping those lines separate. 
I'm more open about my diabetes because for me, at least right now, that is what is more likely to influence my work day. Like if my blood sugar goes low at work, I need to get food right away. Right. I'm checking my blood sugar at my desk because I don't really want to have to go to the bathroom every time. And so I've opened up about that more quickly. Um, but MS personally, I haven't felt reason to share. Uh, so at this point I've kept it more or less to myself. I suppose that's the thing is that a personal thing, isn't it? And if you feel that it's, it doesn't or isn't as likely to affect your work at the moment, they almost don't need to know in the same way that's it's your thing to kind of own and to tell people on your terms and when you feel ready to Mm -hmm. yeah and I've I've kind of alluded to certain things like I know we had touched on medication and in this past year I've had a lot of difficulties around my medication and, and some impacts of having had to switch for a month and that's been really difficult and um you know I'd gone to the neurologist and this all had come up and then I went back into work the next day and there was a lot going on. And and so I definitely cried in my boss's office and let her know about everything, but I didn't tell her the explicit stuff. I just said, you know, I've been on a medication. This is what happened. This is what I'm dealing with. I didn't tell her what the health thing was or, or any of that. Or like, if I'm experiencing vertigo, I'll tell her I have vertigo. I'm a little out of it. If I seem, you know, dizzy or not focused, that's what's going on. Um, but I don't tell her that it's linked to MS specifically because like you said, like that at the forefront, that's not really what is impacting my day. It's my emotional state. It's the vertigo, or in my case, I get a lot of migraines. So it might be that, which I'll be more explicit about, but she doesn't need to know my medical history is kind of how I feel. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder whether there's any concern, cause I know with some things and I, and I know I felt this with, with depression sometimes of worrying about if you are open and you say oh I have this thing about whether they'll judge you know what you're capable of because of their own understanding of of the thing which might not be your own personal experience so I wonder if there's any of that that vertigo is more understandable and and I've had vertigo at times which is not fun um or migraines is (laughs) is something that's much easier to understand so I wonder whether it's that if you say MS that suddenly there'll be all this other stuff that comes up in her head and if that's maybe part of that decision yeah I think um I'm very fortunate with like the direct manager I work with where she's just like so compassionate and supportive and understanding like I I do feel that if that came up in conversation it would be okay um I think for me it's just an important part of how I present myself at work professionally is like my personal life really has no relevance to my professional life. And so as much as I possibly can keep those separate, I do. So it's important for me to share um, the least information to convey what I need to and leave it at that. And I think that is just a best practice for me in any regard, whether it's about my relationships or family stuff going on or whatever it is, you know, I'll tell as much as I need to get what I need and be done with it. Um, Definitely for me, though, too, there's that background voice of like, I work in insurance, a chronic health condition like this, they see as risk, they, you know, at the fundamental level, because that is what we do. It's that analysis. And so and I see it that way, too, when I'm looking at things on paper. Um, And I don't blame them for that. And so I think that just for me reinforces why it's important to keep it separate. And knowing that if the time came where I needed to be vocal about it, 
I have the right avenues to go through, whether it be, you know, the HR department, direct my manager. I know I have specific people I've developed a relationship with where I feel safe to to share about that information. I think that's really positive that you've got those positive relationships with people, because I think sometimes that can be a fear for people about whether there is someone that they can talk to who will be receptive and supportive. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about when we kind of talked about the the route to diagnosis I mean we've touched on medication which we could talk about um, a bit more about that having to change medication if you'd like mm-hmm. but I wonder with just like coming to terms with the diagnosis whether in yourself you're now in a in a good place with it as much as you can be or whether you still are like resistant to it sometimes whether that ebbs and flows as well mm-hmm. yeah I think that actually links in a lot with the medication thing um so Maybe I'll share a bit about that too. So I, I started Capaxone a year in, like I'd mentioned, um, and I'd been on it consistently. And since I'd started that medication, I had no symptoms whatsoever. Like I was very stable. In this past year, the government forced everyone to switch to the biosimilar. And typically when that happens, they um, will basically, anyone who has not yet started on the medication will start on the biosimilar or the generic equivalent moving forward, but they won't switch people who are already on the um, biologic drug. In this case though, and in a cup, in the case of a couple other medications, I think there were four or five that they did this to at the same time. Um, they forced anyone who had been on the biologic to also switch to the biosimilar. So I needed to do that. And I went down every avenue I possibly could, whether it was through work and I I shared with the, you know, with the company what was going on um, in not explicit terms. Um, I went through a program that was supposed to help find alternate options. I went to the assistance program, but it was kind of a catch 22 because the assistance program would only kick in if I had coverage through work, but I didn't have coverage through work, which is why I needed the assistance program. And the government was refusing to allow you to continue even with doctor recommendation until you had tried the other medication and failed it. So good job, government. Thank you for that. So I did switch to what is called Glatect and I didn't notice at first because I wasn't thinking. I was like, okay, I'm on this new thing, whatever. But from almost day one, I had very mild vertigo symptoms again, and they lasted the whole time I was on this medication. And the other thing that happened that I had not experienced in six years of injections, daily injections, was lipoatrophy. Um, And so what that means is now on my legs and on my, I guess, glutes, I have permanent um, kind of marks where the medication has eaten away at, uh, the fat layer on my body. And so I have these indents that are not reversible. Um, this is where I said I'd get emotional and some people deal with that kind of thing early on, right? Some people have a very like blatant physical experience with their diagnosis. That is not my experience so far. And so now I am dealing with the fact that Every day when I look at my body, it is not the same. And it is something that I fought against because I knew that it wouldn't go well. Like in my core, I just knew it would not be okay. Um, And I had no choice. And that I think has been the biggest thing that I'm definitely still processing. And is kind of the next level is the anger around that and the fear. And also just like 
you know, general acceptance over my body. Cause it's like, how do I show up for the person I love when I look down at myself and, you know, I think of all of that. And so that has definitely been difficult and something I have not really shared about until now. Um, yeah. So that, and that I'm very much in, like, I don't have, <laughs> I don't really have this message of like, this is how I'm getting through it and this, because currently I need to let myself just be sad and be angry um, and recognize that like, it is not okay that people like us with illnesses like this are trying to advocate for ourselves and the system is fighting against us and putting us in a position where we cannot win. And that's what happened in this case. And it's like, how do you move through that and feel okay with it? Right. And, and I don't know yet. Um, but that's kind of where it's at now. And I think having this more physical marking, I mean, it makes the present difficult and it also brings up a lot of fears about the future. And, and I mean, I've had that ongoing because I actually, my partner, um, previously was a, a caregiver and, you know, he's had experiences with, with people with MS that has presented in different ways. And so that's been a reminder for both of us of what this could be. And I've met other people along my journey who have had other more explicit physical experiences. And, and that's always for me brought up that, oh, cause I'm in a position where I haven't had to be reminded of that every day. And that's where I say, I've been very fortunate and when I am reminded of that, it is really scary. Um, and it is emotionally a lot to process. And I don't think I'll ever be through it. But what I can say definitely right now is I'm kind of in the thick of it because I'm I'm finally starting to let myself acknowledge how much this last year has sucked <laughs> and how upset I actually am. Um, and so that's very much like, yeah, what I am living through right now. And I suppose that, with I guess with any any condition with life but also is something that is degenerative there isn't a fixed thing so even if at one point in time you're like okay yeah I'm kind of I know where I'm at things can change and and I suppose in that situation it sounds really disempowering that you've got to this point where you've got a medication that you know is is working for you which can be really hard to find in the first place and then like you said, you're advocating for, for what you need and and that barrier is there for just no. Um, so just, yeah, I imagine that's just a really, a really difficult thing because that medication, I guess, is there to try and relieve some of the symptoms and give you that ability to live and make the most out of life, even if it's a different type of normal to what it was before. So, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like anger is justifiable. <laughs> yeah, I'm not the best at letting myself feel that. That's something I'm I'm kind of working on. And um, I'm fortunate that now that that has happened, I'm back on the other medication. And that's the other thing that just brings up that kind of like, are you kidding me? Like, you know, um, is that, and there's definitely some, if I want to be more explicit about it, self-pity involved. Um, and I think that's okay. And I think for myself right now, it's important to let myself feel it and not just be like, oh, this is my part and I'm taking responsibility for it. And I'm going to move forward. Cause no, like this actually physically impacted me emotionally. It impacted me. I am allowed to be angry and I'm now back on the other medication because I proved that I failed the other one. And that's where I'm, I guess that's where too, I'm being hard on myself. Cause it's like, oh, if I had told my doctor sooner and didn't wait a month before I realized these things, like, would it have been as bad or, you know, but honestly, thinking back to it, like 
the marks on my legs happened like right away. And I don't think I could, it, maybe it wouldn't have got as bad, but it still would have happened. Um, and I'm back on my other medication now. And since going back on it, no symptoms. So grateful that I'm back on it. Also angry that that had to happen. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And fearful of what's going to happen going forward. Like, will they force me to go back again? And I, you know, I, but I can't think about that now. Like I'll have to just kind of wait and see um, and try to trust that given I failed it already, they wouldn't force me to refail or fail a different medication. Mm. I think you said, um, obviously that, the anger and and then self-pity as well and I think it's that meeting yourself where you are and if that's what you're feeling it's letting yourself feel those things because with any powerful emotions like those if you just try and bury them down and not experience them that is not good for, for your mental health is it so I think whatever emotions are coming up they're the right emotions to be having and to be mm-hmm. allowing yourself a little bit of being pissed off and, and... <laughs> I didn't know if I could swear um <laughs> yes and I think too, it's like, it just, it's taken me because it's, it's a lot, right? It's, it's heavy. It's overwhelming. Um, along the way with all of this going on, I definitely very explicitly recognize and like reach out to the supports in my life saying like, Hey, this is what's up. I'm not ready to process it yet. And I'm still peeling back the layers very gradually. And I also want to say like, that's okay. Like sometimes we know that there's anger and there's sadness and there's hurt. And it's just not time to dive in. Mm-hmm. And and that's not wrong, right? Like there will be a time and whether it's a year later, five years later, 10 years later, it's okay. Um, and like mm-hmm. you said, when the time comes and we have the support and we're ready to even look at it a little bit, like it's okay to feel those things too. Like we're not wrong for being angry or pissed off or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So just like allowing space for that journey, however it comes up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously now, yay, back on the, the meds that work. <laughs> so uh, so I'm wondering if there's anything else that you found that for you helps you to manage your symptoms. Um, and obviously we talked a bit about it being um, something that any type of inflammation has an impact on. So maybe there are things that are anti-inflammatory that you do in your life that help that and obviously, as we've said, it's it's a unique thing. So these wouldn't necessarily work for everyone who has MS. But if you could share some of the things that you found help you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think the the first thing I would say, and I, I might not, I'm not a sciencey person, um, but the first step I think before even looking like at anti-inflammatory would be eliminating pro-inflammatory things. So for me, definitely food was a place to start. Um And I read this book called The Paleo Approach, Autoimmune Protocol. And I have not stuck 100% with all the food recommendations that came through that book. I did go very strictly into it for the first year to three years. I think it was about three years. And I also really appreciated that it went into the science behind autoimmune as a whole, not just specifically MS, because... I was thinking that too. It's like, well, I have more than one. So like, what are the commonalities and and how can I look into that? And for me, knowing that science to it helps me make informed decisions going forward. And and so, you know, if I want to eat the thing with the sugar, like, and yes, I can do that when I'm diabetic. That's a whole other conversation. Um, If I want to eat the thing with the sugar, (laughs) it's like, okay, if I do that, this is, this is what I'm looking at. And like, can I be okay? And like, yeah. 
at this point, I can be okay with myself eating a bit of sugar, accepting long-term. For me personally, I don't think that's something that long-term is going to cause any significant impact in the interim. If I eat it, I get sore teeth more than anything. I don't know why. Um, And my hands might cramp up a bit. My hands react the fastest, like they get inflamed fast. And so I'll watch that. There are certain foods that I have eliminated and not reintroduced because the reaction is so severe. And whether that's linked to MS or just generally was linked to some underlying kind of stomachy stuff that I wasn't aware of before, who knows? But it's given me a really great opportunity to kind of check in with my body and, and let my body tell me what it needs. And I think with any kind of chronic health diagnosis, the way that I took it as I moved forward was really like my body was screaming at me to listen and I wasn't, and it kind of forced me to. Um, Hmm. And so now looking at what opportunities I have to check in and listen and and be gentle with myself where I need or push myself where I need, because definitely, you know, there's honoring fatigue and there's, okay, if it's been five days and I've done nothing, even though it's exhausting that, you know, 10, 20 minute walk outside in fresh air, might be more beneficial and then I can go back to bed. And so just figuring out how that looks for me. Um, and oh, the other thing I wanted to mention about medications. So, cause I actually, you, you kind of brought this up and I see this posted in the groups a lot about medications, making things better. Um, and my understanding, and at least with the one I'm on is that the intention of a medication is to not make things worse. So the idea would be whatever point you're at now, it will stop the progression of any symptoms or the development of new lesions. Um, Cause the lesions are likely not going to go away. I know there's people who have talked science about that and I don't know, but my understanding is currently there's no conclusive evidence that they are going away. Um, and so it's just about kind of putting a pause on things. And then I think there's other factors we can do, you know, maybe reducing inflammation would help with some general feeling or some energy or whatever, and kind of looking at that. Um, but it's not a fix, right? And I think that's important to notice is really like the fix I'm looking for is stability with wherever I'm at. Mm. It's like relieving the symptoms, isn't it? So that you can maintain kind of where you're at and it's not a cure, basically. It's that kind of... Yeah, it's not a cure. And I mean, in some instances, the symptoms you currently have might not actually go away. It might just be that they don't get worse. And that's the goal. Okay. So depending on, of course, too, like what symptoms you have, like for me, like I mentioned, I was pretty fortunate because I just had that, that clinically isolated syndrome and, and those will co- typically come and go within four to six weeks. I didn't have as many like permanently presenting symptoms like some people might. Had I had those, my understanding at least is that the intention with the medication would not necessarily be to get them better. It would just be that they don't progress. And so it stops progression. Um, is the main idea. Now, there probably are different other components of treatment, you know, physio and other things that people might do for those other things. Um, But the medication specifically, at least that I take is not meant to like reverse things in any way. And thank you for clarifying that. And I think there's sometimes, um, particularly in some groups that are a bit more, um, what's the word? (laughs) Um, I don't know, like eco kind of, um, groups there can be a real resistance mm-hmm. to any types of medications I, I've observed and I, I know from my personal experience with depression that actually medication has at times been really helpful when I've been in a depressive episode to 
just to get to a kind of level where I could then do the other stuff that that would help me and I think sometimes that yeah there can be like a resistance to medication just as a Mm -hmm. no that's no good but yeah no, absolutely. And I think the the other part of that too is like, it's okay. Like I am not here to judge someone if medication is not the path they want to go down. I think for me, it's more, and you know, that's between someone and their neurologist and you'll find the mm-hmm. support that works for you and whatever. But um, for me, it made sense. I actually had a friend who was super concerned. She's like, what is this injection you're doing? I need to research this. And she kind of looked into it. And really all it is, is an amino compound. That's it. And so it's it's just helping to maintain those cells, like the health of those cells. And for me, it was, and like with diabetes, I can't not take insulin. Hmm. Like I will probably be dead within three to four days. So it's okay. I am accepting the help of this medication and like more Western medicine. And it was also important for me to look at the things like in that book that I mentioned and, and other alternatives to kind of bring it all together. Hmm. And so I, I look at kind of both approaches and and just picking out what serves me best where I'm at. Mm. I mean, that's what our whole approach is here, this kind of toolbox thing of like, here's a load of ideas and you have to try out what works for you because not everything is going to. I have the the paleo approach book actually because I found, yeah, for my body, my body likes paleo. So I feel way better emotionally, um, physically, because I get like my book, I get really fatigued from having too much particularly gluten I find Mm -hmm. and like cramps and all that kind of stuff but I also really like chocolate so at the moment it's been like not paleo (laughs) at all but I just kind of think you know we're in quarantine at the moment actually it's a bit of that balance of Mm -hmm. emotionally that's kind of where where my head's at but I I have got that book and and um yeah yeah Yeah, it's a good it's a good book (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely so my my next question I guess and we've talked a lot about your personal experience and thank you for being so open about your experience is there anything that you kind of just wish people knew about MS maybe about autoimmune conditions like if you could just like a couple things you're like I just wish people knew this what would it be hmm oh man that's a tricky one (laughs) um I think (laughs) this is gonna be like really analytic but The thing that kind of irks me the most is when I go into these groups and I see people ask these like really blanket statements of like, has anyone else had this symptom? And then all these people chime in and like, you know, people saying like, oh, goodness, like, actually, you know what? It's bringing me to this point. Okay, here we go. When I was first diagnosed, someone asked me if I thought my drinking had caused my MS because they knew a lot of people who had had a problematic history with drinking who had MS. And in these groups I'm in, along the lines of those comments I just referenced, I see comments of who here had, um, and I forget the word, but like those metal fillings when they were a kid, do you think it caused your MS? Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe there's some sort of, you know, correlation or sorry, causal relation, maybe. Um, But at the end of the day, at least from the research I've I've done, autoimmune conditions are so multifaceted. I don't think we will ever pinpoint one specific thing that caused it. I think it's a multitude of factors. And that was one of the interesting things, actually, when I was diagnosed diabetic that my nurses told me about was like, they've actually done studies on families and like through the years of this family, um, like line, who moved from one country 
to the other country and the rate of occurrence of diabetes in their family gradually shifted to match that of the other country. So it's like, okay, environment is clearly a factor. Diet, probably a factor. We can't pinpoint it. And the other thing is like, maybe those are the, those are true. But what I like even was talking to my mom and stepdad the other night, it's like, if knowing those things helps me make decisions that best support my health going forward, great. But don't dwell on it. Like for me, it's really about picking up and like you said, the toolbox, but it's like, how does this information serve me to best show up for myself as I move forward on my journey? And if it doesn't get rid of it, I don't need it. Um, And also don't judge what information someone else needs to make the best decisions they can for themselves. I definitely see people where I'm like, oh, you would so benefit from this thing but maybe they just don't emotionally, mentally, whatever, have the capacity for that thing. So actually it would overwhelm them and they probably backtrack on their journey. So, you know, giving people that space to decide like, what tools do I need and how many can I handle right now? And if, and when they ask the question, have the information, but I try really to not share as a, oh, you need to look at this because this is what's causing your problem. Like it's very much, if someone comes to me and they're like, do you think that this food I'm eating? And I was like, oh, it's possible. It can be pro-inflammatory. Why don't you read this book and see what you think? Like, mm-hmm. and, and just leave it at that. And I think that's been the biggest, yeah, that's been the biggest like ah, kind of thing that has come up for me that I try to be mindful of for myself and then also share with others. <laughs> hmm. There are a few things I wanted to say <laughs> you were saying that. The geographical thing was interesting because when I was having a little look into MS kind of statistics and and information and apparently the kind of further into the northern hemisphere you go the higher the prevalence rate so for example in the UK Scotland has a higher rate than England interestingly and I guess when you said about that you know trying to I guess obsessing so much on like could it have been this that caused or contributed I guess if you're so fixated on like what was the the thing what does that achieve like even if you did figure out what it was even though it's probably like you said not not one thing how is that going to help you where you are now and with the future if you're kind of just caught up on that was it this was it that was it that I just think to me it just makes me think I would get really anxious if I was just so focused on that part of it Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and I, I think um looking at it maybe that's motivation to make the more healthful choices going forward but it definitely you know, when I was what, two weeks sober being asked that question, had I get, had I gotten hung up on that, that probably wasn't best serving my journey. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think, and, and being aware of that, I think when we talk to other people as well is important. And like, I know for me, I, I do notice that foods correlate with, um, like for me, gluten, like you shared about gluten, used to mess up my digestion. Now when I've like accidentally had it, my digestion is actually fine, but I will have symptoms of what I would call physical anxiety that will last two to three days. And it's really frustrating because normally if I have any sort of more anxious thoughts I or feelings, I can pinpoint what thought is causing it, right? Like there might've been something that happened at work or whatever, but this is just like my heart is racing and my body will not settle down and I don't know what is going on. And the only thing I've been able to trace it back to is, oh, I accidentally ate gluten yesterday. And so I definitely do believe that in some cases, foods can impact what we would consider more like mental health 
stuff. That's not the right words to use. That's a bit more your realm than mine. Um, but also I'm not going to go up to someone who has a history of like, you know, depression and say, well, maybe you should just not eat gluten and you'd be fine. Like, no, that's, that's not how that works. If they're looking for opportunities to change food, maybe I'll recommend a book and say like, oh, you could look into this if you want. But like, that's, that's it. Step back. <laughs> Yeah, that's not helpful to say you should do this, you should try that. Because like we said, it, it's unique. And I think recommending a book or something like that is is so much more helpful because I think you were saying there with the, the physical, I like that, the physical anxiety. Or you mentioned earlier about your hands kind of cramping, recognizing for yourself the physical symptoms maybe, or it might be emotional symptoms when you do certain things whether it's food related maybe it's not getting enough sleep or having too much caffeine or all these kind of things that can have an impact on us and getting to know yourself and then being able to say oh like my hands are cramping or I feel anxious maybe there is something that is my body is not responding well to that I need to address mm-hmm. I would really love to because obviously we're, we're all about mental well-being and I know we've kind of touched on it a little bit as we go through but I guess I wanted to more explicitly ask you about the, uh, the impact on your mental well-being of MS, whether it varies, whether there has been a big adjustment. Yes, yeah, so I think the biggest kind of perspectival shift that I've gone through that has been really helpful with both all experiences, you know, with getting sober, with my other diagnosis, with this one, is focusing on opportunities to share my experience, just like you're allowing me right now, and be of service. Because I don't think I am not someone where it is helpful to say that this happened for a reason. Um, Cause no, I don't think it did. Like this didn't need to happen for me to learn these certain things. Like I could have learned them some other way. Um, but the fact is it did happen. And so what can I do now that it has happened? And for me, that is about being of service and using this experience to help someone else. Um, and so really shifting that focus and looking for opportunities to show up for others, wherever that comes has been a big part of like getting out of my head and finding a bit more acceptance about the circumstances, at least for the time that I'm sharing about it or helping someone. And then I think the other part I kind of mentioned is like, it definitely is ongoing and that's okay. Cause like, this is not going away for the rest of my life. So it makes sense that there would be a bit of an ebb and flow ongoing. And, you know, as the circumstances change, there's, there's going to be more stuff to accept and navigate and, you know, whether it was the original diagnosis, integrating things into my life with the other health stuff, when I move forward into dating again, after that last partnership, you know, ended, and what does it look like to date with chronic illness? Like, who Nelly, all right, like, that's, that's a loaded basket to hand someone of like, diabetes, MS, and I'm sober. All right, let's do this. So figuring that out, like, there's always going to be something new to navigate in this new context. And um, so just allowing myself kind of grace and space to figure that out. And a big thing that's been helpful in that, I think, is building up a community of like-minded people with experiences along that same sort of path so we can, you know, share within that realm and and support each other that way. Amazing. I just, uh, when you were saying about a new partner and all the stuff you kind of mind, like the basket, like, here you go. And I wonder whether, did you actually go kind of like, oh, look, here's all my stuff. (laughs) Because I just asked, because when I started dating my my partner, I was like, oh, yeah, look, here's all my my rubbish. <laughs> like, these are all my issues. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wondered if you actually did. 
Uh, yeah, um, <laughs> I did. Um, but I think that the way I did it is, is what I would focus on more. And, and I think, um, I've spoken about this before. So it's interesting you bring it up is like, for me, it was not about here's the stuff. Can you handle it? Like it wasn't to test that person. It was about really stepping into and showing up for my full self. And for me, I like to think back to if I am not showing my true self to this person hundred percent all the time, And that doesn't mean like oversharing in a way that would hurt someone or or whatever, right? It's just like authentically, this is where I'm at. That's when I'll have regrets. And the other thing about it was, uh, and I feel like this is like a whole other conversation that we could probably get into like the details of this. But the other part that I will say is um, it was also suggested to me that before I open up intimately, (laughs) in other ways, that I maybe ought to be comfortable sharing the more intimate parts of my experience. And so for me, that very much was saying like, hey, I'm sober. And for me, if we're talking more explicitly, like, I'm not comfortable engaging physically when you are not also sober. So I need to be clear about this. And then also sharing like, you know, I have MS and I have this because, you know, you cramp up sometimes and the person needs to be aware of what might happen for talking really practically. So, or like, you know, with diabetes, like I have bruises on my stomach and, and I, I wanted to be able to also create a space where I felt safe going in. And so it wasn't to challenge mm-hmm. the person or test them. It was really about showing up for myself and what I needed and being okay to let them in on what that was. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. And I, I, I don't think I did it as a test. It was a while ago. I can't remember. But, no. <laughs> but I think it was just a, like, this is this is like what you need to be aware of. This is what I'm dealing with. And I suppose it's something that is important to, I think, possibly to discuss quite early on. Because otherwise, for me, I'd be like, well, when is a good time to be like, oh, by the way, this is my experience. And actually just going into it kind of like, this is, this is me. Actually, you know, I, I need you to know it just because this is me. And so that you kind of understand me or have more of a chance to understand me because you've got that awareness rather than can you handle it yeah absolutely yeah yeah before uh, we came on the call I sort of went on the MSUK website and had a look at some of the frequently asked questions because I thought it might be fun maybe (laughs) to to get your thoughts on a couple of these and these are a couple of things that 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 people ask about and about whether they have a benefit and I know some of these possibly you've maybe touched on a little bit but one was the the benefit of exercise. So what do you reckon about that as something that? Oh, man. Well, I mean, I'm not like a physiotherapist or anything like that. So I can't <laughs> give professional advice. Um, I think that, it, yeah, and it's very circumstantial, like to the individual experience of what you can do in terms of physical exercise and all of that. I know for me, some amount of physical activity has been important in just, you know, even for like, mental health around everything and and emotional health that way. Um, I think the biggest thing that I've learned if we're just talking general experience with physical activity has been allowing what that looks like to change and being okay with that. I think that's the big part. And it is, it's about, you know, what activity can I show up for and and how is it helping me right now? And, and like I said, for me right now, that's like 20 minutes of yoga a day and that's it. And it's like pretty low key yoga. Like, let's not lie. At other times, I've gone on seven-hour hikes. So it's just really allowing, I think, yourself space to feel into what works for you right now and 
um, being okay with the fact that 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 might change day to day, week to week, month to month, and it might very well not look the same as it did before diagnosis. Mm. 20 minutes of yoga a day is more than I managed this week. (laughs) I've just been at home eating chocolate. That's okay too. Yeah. It is, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's just where, where I was at. So one of the things that I, that I did come across that um, that I'd not heard of before, and then I, I just um, wondered what your thoughts were about this way of phrasing um, this, is uh, something called the OMS Recovery Program. And I was like, oh, what's that? And it kind of talks about having, I guess, a slightly more holistic approach of things like mm. um, meditation, imagining stress and sunlight. But the way they phrase it, so the O is for overcoming so it stands for overcoming ms and and i just wondered your thoughts on that concept of of it being something that could be overcome well okay you know i love semantics um (laughs) i think the first thing like like with everything is like does that language serve you because different people will understand overcoming in different ways and without knowing the details of like this program right that could very well be overcoming or moving through the emotional mental processing around a diagnosis so that you can best help yourself in this moment. Like, I don't know. Um, I think like we said, like it's not necessarily conclusive that any of the physical markers like on my brain scan are going to reverse. I do know though that there are different, more holistic or nutrition geared programs uh, where people have had success and I use that term kind of loosely um, with m- mitigating symptoms and moving forward symptom free from there. But also it's, it's, it's very like, I can't really give a direct response because there's so many different types of MS to begin with. And then there's the individual experience. And I think it really does come down to like, how does that language serve you? Right. And if engaging in this program helps in some way, then sure. Um, and I think that's okay. And so it's it's really, I think, about just getting in touch with self and, and what you need in the moment once again. And, and that's the main thing. And interpreting overcoming in the way that works for you. Yeah, because I, I mean, I didn't go too deep into it, but they had um, stories of hope that people were sharing. And I guess if someone is struggling to come to terms with it, actually hearing other people's experiences in whatever way you understand overcoming maybe is reassuring in some way and I guess that's part of this podcast is giving people that space to share things to I guess to help people to listen and they might see themselves reflecting in what someone's sharing and it and it gives them that sense of I guess hope or, or that they can handle what's going on in their own life as well so thanks for that and then but this is my last question okay <laughs> last, last question because you said about uh, having people kind of hold space for you to be able to share and that is what we're about here holding space so that people can share their experience and it was just if there was anything else about your MS journey that you wanted to share that, that this is a, a space I'm holding for you if there's anything else that you wanted to put out into the world I guess oh man I think the one thing I don't necessarily need to say it, but what I'll say has been important for me. And I think touching on the topic of being in partnership when you have some of the stuff that you're bringing to the table, it's not my job to be my partner's therapist when it comes to him processing this. And we've made that very clear. And I think the other thing is understanding that, you know, yes, it's my experience and I'm the one living with it. And and I see a lot of people you know, talking about their partners having a hard time and, and this and this, but like, it's not like 
they're the ones and whatever. But like that person, like he loves me so deeply. And so to know that I could go through this in the future, like if things do shift or, or even that I'm going through it now and the fears that come up for me and all of that, that's a lot for him to have to process and be there and witness and not be able to change it. Right. Like you want to be able to help the person that you're with it and he can't fix this. Um, and so having that boundary though, of acknowledging that. And I think I even pointed out as like, it's okay if you have a hard time with this and I cannot be the one to support you through processing those things because I have to process my own shit. So just like allowing space to say, if you need to go talk to someone, that's okay. Mm. Like if you need support, that's okay. You can share with me openly that you're working on it, but do not expect me to fix it for you or be your therapist because I cannot be because it is, it's enough for me to carry this for myself. And I think that has been really important for both of us. And, um, and that's a boundary that I would definitely recommend if that's coming up for someone. Mm. And I know boundaries are a thing that you like, that you like to talk about in this. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> but they're so important. And I, and I think that is really important because this is something that I've had with, with depression of almost feeling a sense of not wanting to burden or upset people around you and feeling that responsibility. But actually, I've got my, like you said, my own shit to deal with. So actually... Maybe I need to have a more of a clear boundary about about that. But I think that's really important that you you are processing what is going on for you. And yes, it might be difficult for them, but you can't process it for yourself and also help them process it. That's not for you mm-hmm. to to do. It's you know, it doesn't mean that you can't support each other. But I think that's a yeah a really important boundary. So thank you for sharing that. Of course. There you go. Thank you so much for um, for coming back and chatting. I've really, well, I've really enjoyed chatting to you before. I really loved catching up with you and chatting to you again. And and I think it has been so um, so interesting in a way, but not in a way. It has been interesting. <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> to uh, to understand your experience and and as we said um, at the start is obviously just your own subjective experience but I still think there's there's value in that to understand an experience really openly um, because it's something that that people might not feel comfortable talking about if if they do have MS being open so yeah thank you for joining us and for being so open and sharing your experience thank you for having me it's always lovely chatting with you and I really appreciate you holding this space anytime (laughs) welcome back anytime (laughs) so I just want to say thank you again to Natalie for coming on the podcast and as we mentioned she is a familiar face to me and I say that because Hopefully she has a familiar voice to you having been on the podcast before, but familiar face to me because I'm used to seeing her face on social media and when we've caught up before. So we mentioned the previous episode that Natalie had been on when she was talking about relationships and that area where she supports people specifically with relationships. And that's episode two of the podcast. And we'll definitely link in the show notes if you want to listen back to that it's another fantastic conversation uh, so I definitely recommend it yeah I just really want to thank Natalie for coming on again and for being so open about her experiences and I guess giving a bit of insight into like we said a specific personal experience of MS and I'm just really pleased that Natalie came on again because I love chatting to her but also that she 
felt that this was a safe space to share that, that she trusted me and, and the Psyche podcast to be a space that would hold her experience and, and treat it in a, a respectful and appropriate way. Really glad that we were able to reconnect for this episode, which is coming out for MS Awareness Week. That's why we had this chat to share Natalie's specific experiences with MS. And that's what we're about at Psyche. Obviously, we've got a bit of a mental well-being lens that we look at everything through as we bring things back to that. But mental well-being isn't in isolation. It occurs alongside everything else that's going on in your life, which is why we like to explore it alongside other things that you might be experiencing. And if you have your own experience, whether that is with chronic health condition, whether it is with something that you've experienced in your life. And if you are wanting to share that story, have that space held so that you feel safe to be open and share it, then please do get in touch because we'd love to have you on as a guest to share your experience. Might be that you're wanting to raise awareness or you want to share your story. And I think there is something so powerful sometimes in in sharing that story and possibly being able to help people through sharing that being of service through your experiences so you can connect with us on social media our website www.psykehe.co.uk and all our contacts on there please get in touch with any feedback any thoughts any topics you want us to cover on the podcast or if you're interested in being a guest and sharing your experience we'd love to hear from you and we hope you've enjoyed this episode and we will be back Wednesday with our usual episode and And we're focusing on happiness this week. It's a really upbeat conversation that I had with Eddie. And I just thought it was maybe something that we need to hear right now. We talked about joy last week. We're going to talk about happiness this week. I'm feeling a need to try and find more joy and happiness in my life. So that's why they're coming out in case anyone else is feeling that as well. Stay safe and speak to you on Wednesday. Bye.